Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, October 15th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 18 to 32. The Lord tells Ezekiel to make a signpost so that Nebuchadnezzar will know the way to Jerusalem as the sword of the Lord closes in on his rebellious city. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Matt Tassie. Pastor Tassie serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Pastor Tassie, welcome back to Sharp Iron. I'm glad to be here, and thanks very much, Tim. So as we get started this morning, Pastor Tassie, let's talk a little context. We're in the middle of Ezekiel chapter 21, although what we are going to read today really does tie closely to what we saw yesterday, the end of 20, the end of chapter 21, at least in the English translation that we're looking at. So in terms of the context that we've got, what should we know about Ezekiel, his ministry, what he's been preaching that'll help us into this part of chapter 21 today? Sure. Uh, for most of chapter uh, 21 and a little bit of the end of chapter 20, uh, Ezekiel's been talking about this coming judgment, uh, especially narrowing in on the sword that will devour everything in ruin. Uh, it began uh, back in chapter 20, verses 45, carried through chapter 21. And so we've been hearing the sword is coming, the sword is coming. And now we get the prophecy that there, there's two ways the sword could take. It could either go down to the Ammonites or it could come to Jerusalem. And, of course, the folks in Jerusalem are really hoping it doesn't come to them because in context, they, they've seen a couple of things the past couple of years. Uh, we're now after the second exile and looking at what we who know the history know will be the third. Uh, which is sometimes confusing. Uh, I had to dig into it a bit to put all the pieces together. Uh, that is, in 605 BC, there was the first deportation uh, where Nebuchadnezzar came and told them to stop it. And he took a couple of folks just to prove that he could. That's when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into Babylon. Uh, a couple years later, about eight years later, uh, a second deportation occurs, uh, and that's when Ezekiel ends up over in, in Babylon. And five years into that deportation is when Ezekiel receives his call to do all these prophecies. And the whole thing is that God sends him to tell the people to stop it. Uh, as the Chronicler said in Second Chronicles 36.15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. And so here comes Ezekiel with God's compassion, telling them to knock it off and get right with God. Because in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar is going to do the final destruction. And if he can't save them from the physical punishment for their sins, at least he can save them from the spiritual punishment of unbelief. So that's the 
the big picture context of what we're looking at today. So on that on that timeline that you laid out there for us from the first exile in about 605 BC with Daniel and then the second exile with Ezekiel a few years later and then looking forward to that third that final exile usually what we think of when we think of the exile the one that's still coming uh, given what you've laid out and what we're going to read today and what we read so far in this section about the sword of the Lord whereabouts are we about how close are we to that final exile at, in this chapter yeah, uh, far cleverer people than myself, uh, Dr. Horace Hummel says that this is probably late 588, early 587, and the exile is 586. So we're about a, a year, maybe a year and a half away from that. Okay, so we're pretty close to what you might say is the bitter end for the, the people of Judah and Jerusalem there back home. Of course, Ezekiel is preaching here in exile to ultimately bring the exiles hope. But first, he's calling them to repentance through the preaching that we're going to see today. In terms of, just before we, we look at the text we've got, in terms of the, the structure of this text, Pastor Tassie, what are, what are, I think there's, there's multiple things we're going to encounter. So just kind of, can you, can you summarize for us, what are we going to see in this text? Yeah, uh, there are markers that God helps Ezekiel use to lay out his text. And, and the big ones are, the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me again. Thus says the Lord God. And as for you, son of man, prophesy. So usually when we see those, those kind of give us the good places to set up the paragraphs and the thoughts. And in the first one, verse 18, the word of the Lord says, go make a signpost, uh, <laughs> which is just kind of a funny thought that God sends uh, his messenger to, to make signs. But Ezekiel is full of this kind of object lesson for the sake of his people. Uh, but really it comes down to there's two roads and which way is Nebuchadnezzar and his sword going to take? Uh, and the signpost is to help us see that it is the divine will of God that Nebuchadnezzar go down the path towards Jerusalem to do this judgment with the sword. The second part, therefore, thus says the Lord God in verse 24, tells us again the reason why this is coming. That is, there is guilt that needs to be uh, exposed. There is uh, sin that needs to be punished for the sake of repentance uh, and justice. And then in 28, it brings in that, again, that second path that the signpost could have led down, down towards the Ammonites, that it really appears the Jews in Jerusalem at this time would much rather God wipe out the Ammonites than them. Uh, and for the sake of justice, God says, no, don't worry, I'll take care of the unjust in my time and my way but you're not going to escape the wrath as well. So those three things are really the three main parts, again, set out by those nice uh, paragraph breaks that Ezekiel gives us. Well, let's let's jump into the first of those sections then. We're in Ezekiel 21, beginning at verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and make a signpost, make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into Jerusalem, the fortified. 
For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem, to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. But to them it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. And that puts us up through verse 23. In the next verse, we get another one of those markers that you're talking about, Pastor Tassie. So we'll pause there. So verse 18 and following, is this one of those, I think you, you mentioned an object lesson. Sometimes I've heard them called action prophecies. Are, are we to understand that Ezekiel, I mean, like he went and made, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm picturing like on the TV show, MASH is the first one that comes to mind where they've got the, the sign there and it shows the directions to each and how far it is to each of their cities where they're all from. I mean, are we to picture Ezekiel going into wherever this road diverged putting up a sign saying Jerusalem this way and Rabbah this way or something like that? You know, I've always wondered that, whether Ezekiel actually does these actions or not. But a lot of the other ones he does. Right. Uh, so I would lean towards he actually goes and makes a sign so that Nebuchadnezzar can stand there. Uh, I mean, whether he does or not, the image is the same. But what you have is... Nebuchadnezzar stands at a place and he needs to know whether he's going to go to the right or to the left, whether he's going to go to Jerusalem or to Rabbah. And the picture of the prophecy is that God leaves him at this fork in the road in order to seek the signs of which way to go. And so God gives him the sign, go this way. It is quite interesting that they do it with the the pagan divinations. Yeah, yeah, and no, yet I, God that, uses the pagan divinations. Right that that is very striking that that the Lord uses these these divinations. Take us take us into that because I really think that that on the one on the one hand it it just surprises. Wait a second, the Lord's going to make use of these pagan divinations, and then just kind of the details that are there. This is one of those verses that gives us a picture of maybe like what some of these pagan divinations looked like, which is also, I think, interesting. So yeah, take us, take us into that. Yeah. Uh, most of what we have are great educated guesses from people way smarter than I, uh, but like shaking the arrows as apparently you have a quiver and you take the arrows, you shake them out like you would a thing of pickup sticks and you choose which one looks like it's pointing the direction you want to go. Arrowhead points you the way to go. Uh, right. Teraphim, that's one of those that the notes say they're not 100% sure about. It's some kind of little human sculpture that they consult. And even that gives them the answer to go to Jerusalem. And then you had the, the occult guys. Uh, I mean, we still use the word occult when talking about uh, the internal organs for that reason, because that, that's what it was, was the internal organs and you would look at the different things going on in the sacrifices that you would make, because, of course, in order to look at a liver, you have to cut something open with a liver uh, and read it. And there were people who thought that internally the 
the liver of sacrifices would be manipulated by the gods to help you understand what to do and where to go. And I have a, a really odd uh, footnote in one of the uh, texts that says, professional soothsayers were engaged to examine the liver of slain animals. They interpreted the coloring, the lines, and it even says that archaeologists have discovered clay diagrams of livers that assisted in such interpretations. So they had professional textbooks wow. to tell them how to interpret that. Wow. That, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible to think, you know, rather than a, I mean, a, if I'm going to go look for a picture of a liver, I'm going to look in a medical textbook, but they've got pictures of livers in their religious textbooks in as a yeah. way of, of interpreting signs. So, okay. So, I mean, we get a, we get a picture here, even though it's not entirely clear on all the details, those teraphim, we're not entirely sure, but we get a picture here of, of how a pagan might consult his higher power, his idol. This is these are some of the ways that Nebuchadnezzar would have used. And and what is surprising, I think, is that it's it's very clear in this text that the Lord, you know, causes the arrows, the teraphim, the liver to be read by Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors so that they will go to Jerusalem. And and at least, you know, as as I reflect on this, one of the reasons it may seem strange. I, not that long ago here at Grace in Youth Catechesis, we were talking about the Second Commandment. And of course, in the Second Commandment in the Catechism, we learn that we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, and then use satanic arts. I mean, these these sorts of things are are off limits for God's people, and, and the people of the Lord should not consult these things as if the Lord is going to somehow lead us through these things. And and yet, here he he takes these things and actually does lead, granted they're pagans, but he leads these pagans through these means. So where like what are some of the bound what should we understand from this, Pastor Tassi? What are some of the, the limits? What shouldn't we understand from this? Kind of see where I mean, I think there's some yeah. there's things to talk about here. Yeah, and even verse 23 says to them, which most likely is the Jews in Jerusalem, it will seem like a false divination. Uh, that they hear Nebuchadnezzar's coming, and they hear Nebuchadnezzar has a sign from the gods, and they say, well, God doesn't work that way, so this must be false. It must not really be the Lord's will. Uh, usually that's how we treat such things. But here, the the bigger picture is that God's prophets have repeatedly said, I'm sending Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> and that Nebuchadnezzar comes to do my will. And God is going to work through Nebuchadnezzar to do it. And so here God is sending Ezekiel, most likely actually out ahead of Nebuchadnezzar, to make sure he knows this is the spot where you stand. This is the spot where you divine. This is where you will find, yes, you're going to Jerusalem. Because e even, e even the pagan things, even the naturalistic things, uh, I'm reminded of the old expression by Luther that the devil is still God's devil. Uh, if God wants a thing to happen, it will happen. <laughs> And so Nebuchadnezzar may be looking at the wrong places to find the answers, but God's still going to make sure that the answer is given because he has a purpose to this. 
as 23 says, to bring their guilt into remembrance. Now, by no means is that an open license for us to go play with this kind of stuff. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar does not end well right. in the story for his divinations yeah. uh, and all the things that come upon him. Uh, but it's still a reminder that, you know, God's in control of this stuff and he's going to make sure that it happens the way that he knows that it needs to happen. Yeah, that, that's very well said, Pastor Tassie. We, we shouldn't take this as a license for us to somehow, you know, I'm going to go shake my arrows and consult them as to which way I should go. That's right. that's not the point. And, and as Christians, we have very clear prohibitions that we shouldn't do those things. That's not how we should mm-hmm. seek after God. And so it's not like Nebuchadnezzar is somehow off the hook for doing these things, even though the Lord is directing it. But but as you said, and I think that quote from Luther is, is spot on, that even the devil is God's devil. He, the Lord, remains the creator of all things, the owner of all things, and directs the events of history according to his will. And that's true even of these pagan things that are intended, you know, and that's the uh, ironic, I suppose, and it, it just goes to show how how powerful God truly is when we confess him to be almighty, that even these these things like consulting arrows and livers and teraphim that are intended to, you know, kind of spit in God's face, say, we're going to find out things apart from you. We know better than you. The Lord says, no, I'm even going to make use of those things to ca- cause my will to happen. And and often, you know, to cause his will to happen in this case, you know, it's, it is for judgment. It, it's not like it, it ends up being a good thing for Jerusalem or for Nebuchadnezzar, as you said, that that the Lord does work through these pagan means in order to accomplish his will of, of, of you know, the destruction of Jerusalem here. And so, it, yeah, it's we got to, I think that's a, this is one of those, and I suppose just the fact that this is Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about fits into this conversation. You know, of all the people that the Lord could have chosen to accomplish his will, wait, wait a second, that really evil king from Babylon, he's the one that you're going to put the sword into his hand, Lord? I mean, I think that that this part talk about these pagan means fits into that entire conversation, how the Lord makes use of all of history to accomplish his will. Yeah, and and especially because that will is for the sake of salvation of souls. Uh. I mean, he, he divvies out his judgment so that we can see our sins and repent of them. Uh, and, and so God does care what means he uses, but he will use whatever means to bring us to see the, the truly big picture of what is truly important, that our sins deserve this condemnation that's coming upon Jerusalem. Uh, and he does it so that we repent. And he'll even use a pagan king to help everyone repent who will repent. Mm. Well, I think you mentioned earlier the the passage from Chronicles about the Lord's compassion in sending his prophets. And and that's I mean, that's really what's going on here with, with Nebuchadnezzar as the Lord sends him. It's it's bad enough that Nebuchadnezzar is coming. That and we don't want to downplay that. This is an awful thing that's going to happen to Jerusalem to the people of Judah. And we can read the Book of Lamentations for for evidence of just how bad it was for them. But the the problem here isn't so much that Nebuchadnezzar is coming. It, it seems that the problem is the people 
they don't believe that he's coming or they don't believe that the Lord is the one who's sending him. And I think that takes us into that. And you mentioned it earlier, but I'd like to hear more at verse 23 to them. It's going to seem like a false divination. And then the Lord brings up these oaths that they've sworn. What What's there in that last verse of this section? Yeah. Uh, time and again, th- these people are uh, <clears throat> unique, but not all that uh, unique when we think about the way people are still today. I mean, you have this string of kings who are <laughs> one is uh, deported away, another set up, one is deported away, another set up. And, and even their names tell you something about what they're thinking regarding uh, they're standing before God because you end up with Eliakim back around the first exile. Uh, he is made king and they change his name from Eliakim to Jehoiakim, uh, exchanging the Eli Hebrew for God with Jehoi. Uh, Hebrew taking us back to Yahweh, uh, the I am that I am, name given at Mount Sinai, for the personal God uh, of the Jews, I am the Lord your God. And you see things like that again and again with the renaming and setting it out so that people are appear to be trying to say, no, we're the Lord's people. Uh, in the same way as Jeremiah is talking to these same people again and again, and they're saying, but we have the Lord's temple, we have the Lord's ark. And <laughs> Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both reminding them, it's a matter of faith, not physical things. You can change your name all you want, but if you don't actually have the faith in the Lord, it's just scribbles on a page. Uh, And these people, time and again, are saying, we are special to God. We are God's people. Uh, Surely, can God really destroy his temple? Will God really destroy his nation? Uh, Because they presume to know what God would do. (laughs) And that is not the case at all. And I mean, they're presuming to know what God would do in direct contradiction to what the prophet of God has been telling them. And and as you said, you've got Jeremiah back in Judah, you've got Ezekiel in exile, both saying the same message to those two groups of people about what is going to happen. And the people refuse to listen to both of those men in both places saying, you know, we've, we've got the temple. It look, it, it's right there. And you know, Jeremiah repeats their mantra as you brought up, and, and Ezekiel has has seen visions of what's really happening in the temple and the desecration that the people have brought upon it that that they have. I mean, it, it's like they're using the temple almost as a, a magic charm of sorts, that as long as it's hanging there on my rear view mirror, this car is gonna be perfectly safe. And and I'm mixing my metaphors here, but but that's that's it's not the cool. You know, I mean, that's not the case, and that's what Ezekiel is, is is saying here elsewhere. Jeremiah says the same thing, that that there's this you know false sense of security. It, they've become complacent. They've placed their trust in the building rather than the the one who is there in the building, the Lord and and His Word and what He's given to them. Is this? You know, I mean, and sometimes it's it's easy for us you know, reading this text twenty five hundred, twenty six hundred years later. 
to to remove ourselves from it. But is I mean, is this a temptation that that we still face as Christians today? And if so, how does that show up in the church today? Any time we say we have X Y Z, therefore God cannot. That's not good. Uh, God will do whatever He wants and however He wants to His great goodwill and purpose of bringing us into Christ. So that you think about Job, uh, the the big problem for Job's friends was that well, surely, surely God only punishes those who have done wrong. Uh, therefore, Job, you must be doing wrong and must have some unrepentant sin. Uh, and so they've established this if if X, then Y of how God works. But God working through Job shows him that no, suffering can even come if you've made the sacrifices God seeks of his people, if you've trusted in his forgiveness. God will still do his thing in his time, his way to his goodness. Uh, ultimately for Job showing the complete conquest over Satan and humiliation over Satan by a man of faith. Uh, so still today, Christians will suffer. And we have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who completely misunderstand suffering in this life. Um, who will say, oh, you're suffering. It must be because you did whatever it is, whatever sin they, they want to point out or think about. And we forget that we live in a sinful world, but God also works through sin and suffering for the purpose of connecting us to Christ. That as Paul bore in his body the marks of Christ and rejoiced in it because it helped him know Christ all the more, that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, we see that God works his will and way to help us understand the suffering of his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we still have those things still today. Oh, I, I, there's the button. Certainly. So, I mean, we've got, you know, a text like this, which, you know, goodness, we're not, we're not pulling at arrows. We're not reading livers. And yet that temptation of the people of, of Israel to place confidence in things in the outward form rather than in the promise of the Lord, that remains for us today, an opportunity for us to examine our lives, repent and turn in faith to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will keep Looking at the preaching of Ezekiel this morning, on the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel 21 with Pastor Matt Tassie, and we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 15th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 18 to 32 with Pastor Matt Tassie. He serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Pastor Tassie, prior to the break, 
We were talking about the first part of this text, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel. He sets up this signpost, and the Lord at that signpost will direct Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem first, not to Rabbah, but to Jerusalem. And the Lord will make use even of pagan means to direct Nebuchadnezzar that way, to bring his sword against his people, to bring the guilt to remembrance, and the people will be taken in verse 24, we get another one of those markers, so we keep reading the text here in Ezekiel 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered, in that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. And that's the next section of this text. That's verses 24 through 27. Pastor Tessie, one of the things that stands out right away in this section, as the prophet begins again, he's not talking about them anymore. You know, he brings their guilt to remembrance in verse 23. Now the Lord is speaking directly to you, to his people, because you have made your guilt to be. I mean, he he really is, is you know, directing the prophet's message now. This isn't just about them out there. It's about you. You're the one in the sights of the sword of the Lord. What Help us into this, this section. Yeah, when when God turns it directly to us, it is that mirror of accusation. And here, the you can either be the generic people directly in uh, Jerusalem. And though verse 25 turns the you specifically to the profane, wicked one, the prince of Israel. Uh, when, when the king of Israel, though interestingly, the northern kingdom has been abolished at this point. So of Israel, we're talking about Judah. Uh, we're talking about that king who is there in uh, Ezekiel's time, uh, the Zedekiah. He should be the righteous one, not the profane one. And, and so and that's even his name, uh, Zadok, Zedek, Zedekiah. He should be the righteous one, but he's the profane, he's the wicked, he's doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord and leading all the people into it as well. His job at this time should be to call his people to repentance, uh, just like the king of Nineveh did. But even the king of Nineveh shows himself more righteous than the prince of Israel at this time, the you. And so his time has come, this you. Um, Likewise, there with that image shall be taken in hand. I mean, there are so many images, especially in Isaiah, about the anointed one in God's hand, and usually those are good images. But here, this taken in hand is like when, when you're a little kid and you've done something wrong, and mom or dad grabs your hand and yanks you out of wherever you are because you're in trouble and you know it. Uh, and here God is taking what should be his anointed by the hand and dragging them out for punishment. 
it's a reminder to us especially that this prince of Israel, who should be the righteous one, is in the line of the Messiah. And we look back at that knowing that they're not the Messiah, absolutely. But if you're looking forward from the line of David, you know that any of the sons of David could be the Messiah, could be the anointed one. So for each king, there's going to be this expectation that is he going to be the anointed, the Messiah? And here Zedekiah falls far short of that, completely profane, wicked. The crown uh, which was promised to David is being stripped off and he is being brought low. And from this time on, the Jews are going to be waiting for the one to have the crown put back on his head. Interestingly, because we have the purview of history to look back on, we know that it will be the most lowly, (laughs) uh, the most out of the way place where the descendants of David are there in Nazareth, when two descendants of David are brought together, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel, and he will be the Messiah. Mm. That's what it should have been. <laughs> uh, that, that's the joy of what the anointed king should have been. In place of looking forward to that, this king has gone mm. far afield. Yeah, I mean, and we, we've met Zedekiah several times when we were studying the book of Jeremiah, and he shows up in Ezekiel as well, although you know, he, doesn't, he doesn't get named here. And Ezekiel's done this more than once, where instead of saying, referring to maybe the king by name, or even calling him king, here he, he only again calls him prince of Israel. He doesn't even you know, dignify him with the title king, because that is how, how wicked Zedekiah is. And I appreciate you bringing up the meaning of Zedekiah's name, you know, the one who should be righteous, it's there in his name, and yet he falls far short of that. You know, I mean, especially you're thinking back to, to Jeremiah, where you've got the the promise of the righteous branch from the line of David, and there's Zedekiah, and he's clearly not it. That you're you're always left. I mean, Jeremiah does this, and Ezekiel certainly does this. You know, if, if that guy in Jerusalem's not the one, well, then what's what's going to happen? And I mean, I do think that, you know, this section in particular of, of Ezekiel 21 raises that question. And it's it's not a small one either. I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about how the, the people of Israel would place their trust in these promises in a false way, in a you know, sort of a magic type of way. As long as the temples there were okay, uh, another place that they would have done that would have been as long as we've got a king in the line of David, we're okay. You know, because, I mean, you, you said it, you know, the Lord had promised a king in, in David's line is going to be on the throne forever. So they think, hey, as long as Zedekiah is there in Jerusalem, we're good. And and the Lord's going to show, well, no, you guys haven't really understood that promise. And I do I do think, I mean, so you, you helped me out here, Pastor Tassie, because this is one of those texts, and they come often in Ezekiel, at least in this part of Ezekiel, where it's, it's sometimes hard to see how Christ fits in. But I, I think this is the part, right? I mean, this is where we need to see, even as judgment is being proclaimed very harshly against Zedekiah, there is in the background here the promise that, okay, Zedekiah is not the guy, but someone is going to come. I mean, is this is where is this part of the text where we're really going to see Christ? Oh, yeah. When, whenever you've got the crown, whenever you've got the 
ruling of Israel, and especially that turn to Israel instead of Judah, mm, yeah. just brings you back to the far bigger of God's people even. Uh, when Israel has already been destroyed, why bring Israel in unless it's to picture that bigger promise further back? Uh, when you're dealing with the profane and the wicked who should be the righteous and the anointed, it, it all leaves you wanting more. Uh, in, in the same way, this is the interesting part of here where you're looking at the anointed and the line of David, and God is saying he's going to come in and completely wipe stuff out. Uh, the question for the Jews has to be, well, what about that promise to the anointed? And and here's where remembering the deportation schedule it is just so helpful that you have the uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going out in the first deportation. Uh, in the second deportation, you get some of, with Ezekiel, what appears to be the faithful priests and some of the other heirs of the Davidic line. They're out of Jerusalem at this point uh, so that it really looks like god does that on purpose in order to preserve that remnant that isaiah is going to talk about to make sure that the line endures but what the people seem to forget is uh, god's bargain with abraham or abraham's bargaining with god you know the good old what if there's a hundred people what if there's 50 what if there's 10 what if there's one and God says, yeah, for the sake of one righteous man, I'll spare the city. But God goes in and removes the one righteous man by sending the angels to get Lot and his family out so that now there are no righteous people and his justice is completely just in doing so. God has removed the remnant already. <laughs> uh, so he has secured the line of David. So now judgment will come upon Jerusalem just as surely as upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, it's not going to be a, a pretty thing for the people of Jerusalem. And I do think, I mean, you know, that's where the, the words in verse 26, exalt that which is low, bring low that which is exalted. Jerusalem sees itself as exalted the people there in jerusalem we we've heard this in ezekiel already the the people in jerusalem think they're the choice cuts of meat there and it was the scraps that were taken into exile already and and here you know you have that that theme of reversal that comes up throughout the scriptures that that those who are prideful who think that they're great on their own the lord humbles that kind of self-exaltation and the lowly, that is whom he exalts. Those who, who know they have nothing apart from him, those who, who know their sinfulness, that's what the Lord takes and he exalts to show his own glory and power. And this, you know, this matter of bringing low the high and exalting the lowly, I mean, I think that's, and I think you, you, you said this already, that's a connection to Christ. You know, I mean, of, of where, where does this Davidic line go? It, it, it looks great, and then it goes to nothing, it seems, and, and where does that, you know, to use the Isaiah again, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, right? That's, that's where this lowly, lowly branch becomes exalted. And even that ex exaltation happens through death on the cross. So that, you know, the, what we're seeing here in Ezekiel 21 is the high being made low. 
But when the Lord comes along, you know, 500, 600 years later and exalts that which is low, he's going to do it in Christ for the sake, as you said, of saving sinners. Yeah, which uh, his mom picks up on that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit already in the conception uh, when she sings it. Yeah, you're right. The Magnificat has a, a fantastic uh, a fantastic example of this theme of, of reversal. One, one more thought on this section, just briefly, Pastor Tassie, before we, we get to the rest of the text. In, in verse 27, the, I, I think this is... I don't know how you read this, because I, I think there's maybe two ways to take this, and, and maybe they, they're both intended. Particularly, you know, he says, a ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I'll make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Who's the, what do you think, who's the he that's going to come there in verse 27? Yeah, it really all depends on what the this is. Hmm. Uh, if the this in 27 is a ruin, a ruin, a ruin, well, the ruin comes when Nebuchadnezzar comes to bring God's judgment upon it, and God gives Jerusalem to him, to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, if the this, though, is the low being exalted, then you're looking for that one to whom all judgment belongs, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and God will give all judgment to him, who is the, the righteous one, the true king of Israel. And I'm not sure which one the this is. I think in the immediate context, it looks more like the ruin. Uh, but one could entirely see the coming outcome of ultimate judgment being given to God, just as so often these prophecies have the immediate fulfillment and then the typological ultimate. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but think that Ezekiel might have that in the back of his mind as, as he's going through verse 27 there, where certainly, I mean, I think, you, I think you're right. You, you need to see Nebuchadnezzar in that verse, that the ruin's not going to come, or the ruin's not going to happen until Nebuchadnezzar comes, and the Lord's going to hand Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet some of the echoes of, of other scripture passages in that, particularly Genesis 49, and some of the, the, you know, the scepter not departing from Judah, there when when Jacob blesses his sons. And we've heard Ezekiel echo that prophecy already back in chapter 19. He used imagery from Genesis 49. So I, I wonder if he's, you know, if, if that's maybe in the background here. And, and this is, you know, Dr. Horace Hummel brings this out in his commentary that, that maybe that is in the background. And and there's, a again, a note of hope there, even as, as judgment is being proclaimed. So that's the, again, we've got two sections here so far, the word Lord coming to Ezekiel, both dealing with Nebuchadnezzar coming to Jerusalem, bringing the Lord's judgment. And now, if we think back to where this started, that signpost, Ezekiel's going to, it's kind of like he's going to take us back to that signpost and take a look down that other road. So we're picking up Ezekiel 21 now in verse 28. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, Say, A sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment. Return it to its sheath. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. 
and I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Ezekiel 21, verses 28 through 32. Pastor Tassie, just to get us started on this section, the Lord says concerning the Ammonites. Remind us a, a little bit about the Ammonites. Who Who is this group of people, some of their historical interactions with Israel, and and then why they're being brought up here at this moment? Yeah, they're, they're the folks, uh, uh, essentially neighbors of the Israelites, uh, and they have had long clashes. Uh, you, you find out the number of times that uh, they've looked upon the people of Jerusalem and certainly not treated them in what would be considered godly ways. Uh, they've, they've looked at their exiles, they've looked at their plight, and they've turned a, a hard heart to it. And a, a couple things that I've, I've read elsewhere show that they may have at times taken advantage of Israel's weakness and, and took people as slaves of the Israelites, uh, or at least did nothing to help prevent uh, their being so broken in this way. As to the specifics of them, uh, I actually can't give you that one. Do you know a little more on them? Well, I mean, I just generally, just that general outline I think is helpful. One one thing that I, is maybe usually helpful to remember is the Ammonites are descendants of Lot. They're they're one of the the descendants of of Lot from after you you mentioned Lot earlier that when when he flees Sodom and Gomorrah, there's that uh, incestuous. Uh, relationship with his daughters and the Moabites and the Ammonites come from that. So they're relatives of Israel. They're close to Israel. And yeah, there's there's a history of animosity between them that there probably shouldn't have been, but there there was. So that's who that's just the general outline of who we're talking about. And and it does seem in this context that the Ammonites maybe were kind of standing by uh, watching with maybe even a little delight as Nebuchadnezzar came and and took Jerusalem. And now it sounds like, and, and this is where I like to <clears throat> just take us into this text here, it sounds like now the Ammonites, although they escaped the sword for a time, the sword's going to come to them before the Lord returns it to its sheath. Yeah. It, it's often difficult to place when Ezekiel keeps using pronouns. Right. It'd be nice if he used proper nouns. Uh, but when he says in verse 29, while they see for you false visions, they divine lies for you. Well, you have to try and figure out who the they and who the you are. Uh, because the prophecy is concerning the Ammonites, it seems like the you is the Ammonites. So while they see for the Ammonites false visions, while they divine lies for the Ammonites to place on the Ammonites. Um, that's my first reaction of the who the you is. Mm. And then the question of who the they is sounds an awful lot like back in verse 23, but to them, it will seem like false divination. Mm. All right. So as I look at that, it sure sounds an awful lot like there's a sword ready for slaughter, 
and the Israelites, the Jews in Jerusalem, would really like for God's will to be for that to go down and crush the Ammonites hmm. uh, instead of us. Hmm. Uh, right. But because pronouns and antecedents are always fun uh, to look at, where do you connect those pronouns? Well, I think, I mean, that's that's not one that I, I necessarily would have, I, I, I guess this is the way I was reading it. They would be sort of your own false prophets, kind of like we've seen elsewhere. You know, they being people among you, they, your your false prophets, your your diviners, like, like Nebuchadnezzar was using, they're lying to you, but that's not really the case. And so the sword is going to come upon you, Ammon. But I, I think, I mean, the way that you're reading it, I think is is interesting and, and does, I mean, fit such that, so it, help me make sure I understand what you're saying, that that the idea here is the the Israelites are, are are seeing false visions for you. They're hoping that the sword's going to go to Ammon, but and, and this is where it just connects to the others then, but it's really not going to go to Ammon at this point. It's going to come to Jerusalem. And so this is another part of the like the false hope for for the people of Judah. Is that is that what you're you're driving at? That's what I saw. Uh, in, uh, also, the you could be the sword. Right. They see false visions for the sword. They divine lies for the sword to place the sword on the necks of the, and again, profane and wicked, the same words used back of Zedekiah, uh, though here it's concerning the Ammonites. Uh, the irony there most likely being that that's what they want to think of it. That, oh, the Ammonites are profane and wicked, and we're so holy and righteous. Um, but whenever you point those fingers without actually looking at the judgment of God's law, you really have to ask who the true profane and wicked ones are and who deserves the sword. Well, and I suppose that's a connection to us because we, we would always like to hear profane or wicked and think about those people over there. But the scriptures constantly direct us to hear profane and wicked and first examine our own hearts for our own wickedness and repent accordingly. Yeah. Uh, just like uh, when they bring the conversation to Jesus, what about those wicked people over there? Mm. And Jesus says, yeah, the same thing's going to happen to you too, unless you repent. Right. Yeah. That's, it's always a, a temptation for us is to point the finger elsewhere without examining our own hearts to look at the speck in the neighbor's eye without seeing the plank in our own. And the Lord constantly directs us to examine our own, our own hearts, lest his his wrath be poured out upon us. And again, we have that that brutal description again here in this in this text of the coming destruction that the Lord will work through His sword through the Babylonians. Pastor Tess, we have about three minutes left on the morning. As you think about this section of Ezekiel twenty one, the various things we've talked about this morning, help us to to summarize. And again, from a, a text like that like this, that is is often full of judgment. Help us to see how it fits into the proclamation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, when, when God wants to use whatever means he wants to, to bring us to repentance, we should not harden our hearts against it. We, we should let the calamities, the sickness, the pandemics of the world to bring us to realize that we ourselves are sinful 
and that whatever condemnation is coming upon us is just because God is just. And if God is just and allows these things to come, then it is good for us to see them, to turn to him in repentance and seek his forgiveness. And it may be that in the flesh, we fully deserve a temporal punishment. But we do pray that in recognizing these things, these works of the law, that we would be spared that eternal punishment by trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the holy one, the true king of Israel, who now rules and reigns forever, who shed his blood for us to forgive us of whatever crimes, whatever sins that we have committed against the Lord. So that trusting in him, we can know that whatever comes, we have an eternal home in the Lord's kingdom. Pastor Matt Tassi is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Shawnee, Oklahoma, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 18 to 32. Pastor Tassi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, and God bless. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Ezekiel 21 or any of the rest of the book, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us with your comments as well. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.